Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Andrew Scharenberg, co-founder and CEO of Umoja Biopharma and executive partner at MPM Capital. Thanks for joining us today, Andy. Pleasure to join. Appreciate the invitation and opportunity. Wonderful. So Andy, to kick us off, walk us through how you got interested in biotech and the arc of your career. Happy to. So I am a physician by training and have always been interested in technology and in moving the needle for therapeutics for my patients. My patient population is patients who have pediatric immunodeficiencies. And so when I moved to Seattle Children's in the early 2000s, it was explicitly with the goal of being able to have access to a patient population that had been cultivated by one of the physicians here, a gentleman by the name of Hans Ox, who was one of the first people to really look at inherited diseases of the immune system in pediatric patients, and to then be somebody that would be able to build on the work Hans had done by starting to develop molecular therapeutics. And at that same time, right around the 2000s, this was a time when some of the first gene therapies were entering clinical evaluation in France, but some adverse events occurred because when those gene therapies were applied, the cells that they delivered a gene to actually became transformed and developed leukemias. So that pushed me in the direction of developing gene editing-based therapies for some of these same types of disorders and basically kicked off my biotech career because at that time to do gene editing, you had to develop a technology platform. I built a technology platform in my academic lab. And what I realized was that things that you can do in academic labs, sometimes at some point sort of outgrow the resources you can bring to bear. And so I spun a company with that technology out of my lab. And that was my first transition into biotechnology. So that company became a, known as Progenin. It developed some of its additional technology and was eventually acquired by Bluebird Bio. And it led me into what I would call a hybrid academic biotech career where I would do discovery in my academic position. And when the discovery got to the point that it required industrial resources or industrial expertise, I would move that into a biotech company and eventually then move that forward, or, or at least initially with working with venture capital colleagues. So had that first experience in the early 2000s. I actually then realized that I was not good at business. I had a lot of experience in the lab. I needed some experience where I was working with real people who were expert in managing teams, expert in understanding how to build and fund companies. So I spent some time commuting from Seattle to Paris, where I managed a team at Selectus Therapeutics. So I was the CSO there, worked on a platform for CAR T cells around sort of in the late 2014 period. Eventually, that platform actually got partnered and moved and was eventually being moved into a company called Allergy. Then I was back at the US again. I worked with some of the folks at Atlas Ventures to form a company called Generation Bio and was involved with another colleague to form a company called Genti Bio prior to forming Emoja Biopharma. But that arc you can see is really driven from interest in doing things that are really impactful for patients and interest in discovering new technologies and finding ways to industrialize them. You need that industrial component in my mind to traverse the drug development pathway to bring something that's really gonna be rigorously developed and something that can really be impactful for patients. And Emoja then emerged out of, I would say all of that experience Part of that experience involved, or the formation process for Emoja involved discussions with a colleague, Mike Jensen, 
So Mike is one of the pioneers of CAR T-cell technology and a colleague of mine at Seattle Children's Hospital. So people who, for my faculty position at the University of Washington, where I started my career, very often you have a clinical practice at Seattle Children's. So I got to know Mike very well. And we had some conversations looking back in 2019 on about a decade of the impact that CAR T-cell therapies had had. And what we began to realize was these are working incredibly well, but they're only reaching a fraction of the patients that could benefit from them. The manufacturing complexities limit their full application, even for indications in which they're already commercially approved. And taking those forward in larger indications is hindered by challenges in delivery, manufacturing complexity, and also by some of the biologies of more complex tumors like solid tumors. And so Emosia was formed by myself and Mike, another colleague, Phil Lau, and another colleague who's more on the manufacturing side, he brings an engineering mindset named Ryan Chrisman, out of that desire to bring the benefits of CAR T-cell therapy. So that's really been the arc of my career from the very beginning in the early knots to the formation of Moja and the position I hold now. Thanks, Andy, for walking us through that. I'm curious, as you think about co-founding a company in the past to wearing diverse hats like executive partner at MPM to sitting on scientific advisory boards, I'm curious how you think about your role changing in each of those environments and how you approach those conversations differently when you're wearing a different hat. Yeah, absolutely. Coming from academia, you bring, I would say, a scientific lens to everything and I would also a discovery lens to everything. And what the interaction with the biotechnology and the experience I had moving projects from my lab into companies taught me was that there are many more things you have to do. The, the industrialization of a discovery, discoveries are often made by an individual or a small team. When you move it down the drug development path, you have to add in regulatory expertise, manufacturing expertise, and business expertise. So all of those are hats that in some way, shape, or form you have to wear as you move up the executive ladder. And they're super important to be, in other words, the company formation, the, the expertise you gain in learning how to do that is built through I would say first doing it, which is kind of my first experience at Progenin, and then working together with people who've done it before, almost a mentoring process where as I talked to people from the venture capital industry, I began to realize, wow, you really have to bring in early people with regulatory and manufacturing expertise because otherwise you're going to fall behind. And when you get to the time where you need really well-developed processes for this, they don't exist. And then the same thing on funding. You have to be thinking about that earlier because you need to do the planning to understand what resources you need to then move a project forward. So as I moved along, I think what I began to realize is that the lens I brought became much broader and I began looking around the corners to what problems I would be encountering much earlier over the course of my career. And so I wouldn't say necessarily for each hat that I've worn that it's been a different lens, but I would say over that arc of my career, it's become a much broader lens where I'm able to plan much earlier for what's to come in each particular project. Wonderful. And let's talk a bit before we jump into the work that you're pursuing at Emoja. Educate us on the CAR-T space as you see it and the opportunities that you saw in that space when you decided to pursue Emoja. Yeah. So I was educated in the CAR-T space when I was involved in recruiting my colleague, Mike Jensen, to Seattle Children's. So Mike's a pediatric oncologist. I was one of the research pediatric faculty members there, and we were looking to attract other faculty who had real interests in molecular therapeutics. And Mike had already built a really, I would say, leading and incredibly creative CAR T-cell program at City of Hope. He's had had a past connection with the Hutch in the Seattle area, so it was a very natural opportunity to recruit him there. 
in the course of that recruitment, you begin to realize how incredible these things can be. He had actually done and was, I think, 10 or 20 patients in to a clinical trial of treating pediatric leukemia, getting complete response rates in the 80% range. So that was my introduction to the CAR-T space. And his programs then became part of a company called Juno Therapeutics. And they were part of, if you look at that time period, there was the formation of Kite, Juno, and the initial commercialization by Novartis of a CAR-T cell therapy from the University of Pennsylvania. Kind of the origin of the CAR-T space all emerged in that period of time. And you saw incredibly transformative effects on patients. And what then has occurred, I would say, over the next, since 2014, now almost the last nine years, is these have moved into commercial application. The challenges in manufacturing have limited their ability to be administered to every patient that might benefit from them. So the lens I bring to it is that the mechanism of action for CAR T cells is established, particularly for hematologic malignancies. Where we're falling short is delivering them to patients who can benefit. And that is what the seed of Emoja was. How do we bring together the right technologies to deliver these to more patients. And that's not just for liquid malignancies where they're already working, but what's the next step we need to take to make them impactful in solid tumors? And where do you see the space going and evolving, let's say over the next two decades as best you can? We've seen a little bit of that already. So these are the current CAR T cell therapies that are commercialized are autologous. You're making them from the patient's own cells. There was an attempt by the field. Early on, people were recognizing these would be hard to consistently deliver and to deliver at scale if we were ever going to imagine delivering them, say, to hundreds of thousands of patients. So there was an attempt to be able to manufacture off-the-shelf therapies called allogeneic CAR T-cell therapies. That has proven very challenging. And one of the things that's occurred in the last year is the recognition that if we're going to get that to work, it's going to be a harder and longer path than originally anticipated. And that has put the spotlight on in vivo CAR T-cell therapies which happens to be what Emoja was formed to deliver. So Mike and I, when we were evaluating in 2019, when Emoja was formed, what was working and what wasn't, our conclusion was autologous works. We had looked at some ideas for allogeneic, but we felt that was going to be challenging. So in vivo CAR T-cell therapies, basically the idea is to have the CAR T-cell be formed in the patient and have them manufacture their own therapy. I think over the next decade or two, that that approach is going to take over all of the easier indications for CAR T-cell therapies and hematologic malignancies because it can be delivered off the shelf. The delay in initiating treatment is far less. The cost is less. The logistical complexity is less. And I think we're going to be able to get it to the point where we're going to be able to deliver it at outside of some of the major medical centers, which is where CAR T-cell therapies are currently delivered. So as I look beyond that to 2050, befitting the name of the podcast, I would say in vivo generation of CAR T cells, in my mind, is always going to have a place. I do think you're going to see stem cell derived cell therapies playing an increasing role. And the reason for that is stem cell derived cell therapies are cell therapies, basically tumor killing cells that I'll call just cytolytic lymphocytes. So these are immune cells that can kill tumor cells. You can grow those at large scale from a stem cell. And the advantage of this approach is you can take that stem cell and you can modify it so that you can make a super powerful cancer killing cell and you can put controls on that that you would never be able to have on a T cell that's generated with a more limited engineering capability in the body. So I see the future being more and more complex cell therapies that are what's accessorized for physician control. You might think of it a little bit like a flip phone to an iPhone type transition, increasing complexity, but also increasing user control and flexibility in how you deploy those cell types. 
Wonderful context, Andy. Would love to now switch over to the work that you're pursuing at Emoja, where you are from a development perspective and where the company is. Absolutely. So I think I've provided some context on the formation of the company and the key roles of one of my co-founders, Mike Jensen, so a pioneer in the field. When Mike and I were thinking about what technologies we bring together, we also brought in a third colleague, Phil Lau. So Phil is head of the Drug Discovery Institute at Purdue University and an expert in targeted small molecules. And so the concept at that time was I had developed some technology for in vivo gene delivery. Mike had developed some technology for how you control T-cells. And Phil had developed technologies for ways to combinatorially, essentially to label a tumor, a little bit like when you think of a laser-guided missile, you use a laser to light up a target, and then the missile goes to hit that target. Phil's expertise in targeted small molecules allows him to cover a tumor with essentially a tag. Then Mike and I's expertise allows us to engineer T-cells that can recognize that tag and kill tumors that are labeled with it. So the formation of Emoja was with the intent of integrating all these technologies So complicated three technologies themselves that have some complexity into a therapeutic that ideally would be simple enough to use. And the analogy I would make is that if you look at an iPhone, an iPhone integrates a lot of complicated technology, but at the end of the day, the user interface is simple enough that essentially anyone can use it and to do some amazing things, communication of all types, accessing information of all types. It's the same idea. You integrate complex technologies, but you do it in a way that allows it to be simple enough to be broadly usable. So that's the goal of Emoja is to generate T-cell therapies that we can apply that have the capabilities to really be impactful, even in solid tumors, but are also deployable in situations like maybe even local hospitals where you know local oncologists will be able to deliver them safely and effectively. Great. And given what all you could do with your platform and technology. I'm curious how you think about indication selection, particularly in the early stages of biotech and your own mental model for which indication should come first, second, third, and how that's evolved over time. Yeah, I would say a lot of it certainly has evolved a lot in the past couple of years. So I think anytime you're creating a biotech, biotechs are unique companies, right? They burn cash and they generate data. And the capacity and the desire of your investors to pour cash on your company is going to be limited. And the catalyst to get investors and increase the number of investors who are interested in your company is clinical data. So you cannot put that gap between the start of your company and clinical data. It can't be too long. You have to find an indication where your technology can be deployed effectively, where it can create meaningful patient impact. And that's probably got to occur within a three to four year period of time. That's what I would say. Now, if you are a platform company, you might pick a slightly longer development path because you can partner that platform to generate cash non-dilutively and create a partnered portfolio where you don't have to pay all the bills. So it kind of depends a little bit on what type of a biotechnology company you are. But I look for indications with high patient impact where I see a plausible path that I can with funding, I think I can relatively easily secure and obviously maintain returns for your earlier investors as well as your founders and the people you're bringing in you don't want to give away all of that value all the way along the path, right? So it's a kind of a multivariate calculus of where you can get to with what capital is available. Now, two years ago, you could tell a very good story and raise a lot of capital. And that allowed us to have maybe a bit longer runway available a couple of years ago. Right now, where the equity capital markets for biotech have really changed in the last two years, I think people will see it referred to, if you read biotech trade magazines right now, you're hearing nuclear winter as far as Mm -hmm. the environment. So it's a, I would say, a higher bar to get funding. You've really got to have a tight 
story where there's a very clear path to where you're going to go and where you can generate clinical data that your investors will believe is going to create a value inflection for them so they can get the return on investment they're looking for. I think you could fund a longer path two years ago. Now you're having to have to be much tighter on that three to four year time frame, in, in my view. And what impact do you think, you know, these sort of, let's say, corrections have on the overall biotech ecosystem from your vantage point as it relates to innovation? Perhaps there's some folks that think this is this was needed because things got a bit out of control over the last two years. I'm curious where you fall on that spectrum. I think there's a natural cycle, in my view, in any technology where there's a lot of euphoria about it. And as you begin to understand that what the path is, maybe it's more complex and longer than you anticipated where investment interest falls. And we have certainly gone through that, in my view, over the last two years. I think when you have that investment, you create a lot of innovation. The innovation that's created doesn't go away. It becomes essentially the fertilizer and the seed for future innovation. So people that are in the companies, even ones that might not be successful in bringing products to the clinic, gain experience and they see things and they work on areas that create knowledge that then they bring to their next endeavors. So uh, none of it's wasted. It doesn't necessarily mean that it comes back to the investors who made those investments, obviously, but that is in my mind where we are. What you're gonna see is that the out of all of that euphoria and the investments that occurred, you will have some that are very successful and that create really significant impactful products. And the ones that don't, you're gonna spin off knowledgeable expert people who become the founders and the people that create the next, next generation. So it's not wasted from the standpoint of where those resources go in the long term. even though I think the fact that investors may not do so well with the very large amounts of investment that were done in the 2021 period will make it a little tougher for the people in 22. But if you have a live drug in 22, 23, 24, you've been able to raise money. We saw that just last week with Cargo Therapeutics. They have a very impactful CD22 CAR T-cell therapy, and they were able to attract large amounts of investment. I don't see that changing. Successful therapeutics get used, and I think investors recognize that. I think what's changed a little bit is they're less willing to accept a good preclinical story. They want to see clinical data. And if you look at Cargo, they had clinical data to generate that investment. Yeah, certainly agree. And it's a very interesting point there. How large is Emoja now? And I'm curious if the pandemic has changed your approach on team building, distributed teams, or anything of the like. Yeah, so we are, I think, about 135 employees right now. And we're probably larger than a typical biotech would be. In cell therapy, you're really dependent on manufacturing. And so we made the decision and actually this goes a little bit and is related to the pandemic, but we made the decision to build our own manufacturing facility because we felt we needed to control all of the supply chain and staffing issues due to the complexity of the products we're making. So when we were formed in 2019, so right as the company was formed, we entered the pandemic. We made the decision at that time to be geographically agnostic about our hiring. And simply because everybody was interacting at that point almost entirely through Zoom meetings, other than the people that are actually working in our laboratories. So those folks remained on site throughout the pandemic. And that was enabled by, at least in Washington, regulations that provided for biotechnology firms working on therapeutic products to be able to continue working in person and on site. So we built our labs the way we had to. We did the rest of our development with Zoom meetings. The insight I would have from that is where we had existing relationships Zoom meetings are very effective in sustaining those. You understand the working style and the miscommunications that might arise through the lack of the informal communication that occurs live are papered over by those existing relationships. 
it's harder to form good teams just through Zoom meetings. And as we've gotten out of the pandemic, it's been apparent that the ability to get back in person and have teams working together, much better relationship forming, complex nuanced topics are much more effectively discussed in person than they are over Zoom. There's just side conversations that happen that allow two people who might've had disparate views where in a Zoom meeting, they would just be banging at each other to the detriment of the rest of it. They'll have a side conversation, get aligned and then join in a constructive conversation in person. And that doesn't work as well by Zoom. So I would say the complexity needs in person, but you can do an awful lot by Zoom. And in some ways we do have laboratory workers who they do a lot of their lab work in person. They might spend a day in the quiet of their home doing data analysis and catch a few Zoom meetings. That actually, I think, is more efficient because you're saving them commute time, giving them a a quiet place to concentrate as opposed to a bit more of a tumultuous lab environment. And I'm curious, you know, as you've gone from co-founding the company to now 150 people, how do you think about the evolution of your role and making sure that you're doing the things that are required of the CEO when it's 150 people versus 20 people? I'd say you got to be humble in this business. I'm a first-time CEO. I think a lot of biotech CEOs are. I came from academia, so I haven't had broad experience in managing larger teams like that. And so I have had to learn a lot. Be humble. I have probably three or four CEO mentors that I talk with and to bounce ideas off. You have to be able to take input from your board, really listen to them. Doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they say because everybody brings a lens of experience and expertise, a different lens to a particular situation. And as a CEO founder, you bring a unique, I would say, understanding of the technical aspects of what you're working on and how to position that strategically against the other competitors in the market and how things are working in the clinic. At least for me, going from 20, where I was pretty new and somebody that probably could effectively manage a 20-person team. As we've grown, I've had to learn a lot, talk to a lot of people to understand things, and learn also that you're never going to be an expert in everything, that I need to delegate responsibilities to people that then know more about it and trust them. So things where I might have had my fingertip on everything at 20, at 150, I have to choose where I have my any kind of visibility. And I also have much more external interactions. Board investors and my C-suite are the vast majority of the discussions I have now, as opposed to 20 people where I had a pretty heavy voice in the day-to-day planning of science and interpretation of experiments. I even ran a few experiments in early on. And for the aspiring entrepreneurs and other founders that are listening, I'm curious to hear how your approach to fundraising has changed from the first time you had to do it to the most recent time and any advice you could provide folks that are listening. So over the course of my career, I'll start with it that way. I started out talking a lot about the technology and then in my first company, because that's what I knew. And I think now I'm able to provide a much more coherent and venture capital friendly story because I understand what they're looking for. And I also understand why they're looking for it. As you begin to understand, you look at just financing in general, hey, in the venture industry, you make 10 investments and that what I think you need one really successful one, five maybe flat and a few that are going to go to zero. And so you start to see, hey, if you stitch all that together in three or four years, you need 
a readout that starts to give you an understanding of what's happening. And you begin to understand why the recipe exists the way it does. And you can then build the story that you're pitching to people around something that these guys understand. And I think that's really my evolution was understanding how to do it. That's what you do when you're looking for seed funding. So I think I was certainly in 2019 a much more effective advocate for seed funding of the technology we have at Emoja than I was for the seed funding that I tried to get for Progenin. So for Progenin, for my academic colleagues, be humble. I never got any seed funding. I think clearly incompetent. And at that point in time, really very terrible understanding of business. It never had more than five employees before it was acquired. So I really did know technology. I was able to position that technology relative competitors in a way that built a lot of value, but I would never have built a successful business. This One of the smartest things I think I did was to hand it off to the to professional management teams at Bluebird that knew then how to take it from there. I gained a lot of experience in 2019. Now I'm a lot more effective at how you make that pitch and then understanding what a seed investor is looking for, what a series A, series B investor is looking for. And now I'm back in the learning process of maturing the Emoja story so that it's one that public equity capital market investors can understand and get on board with. Wonderful advice. Thanks for sharing your own personal journey there, Andy. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the future of biotech. And you hinted at this earlier, which was the increasing complexity in drug development, given the diversity of treatment modalities and technologies that we have access to now. Talk to us about what impact you think that will have in the next two to three decades and particular challenges that will come out of that increasing complexity in drug development and administration. Absolutely. So I was in the conversation we had just before the podcast, I was mentioning to Rahul that I had seen a really interesting article showing small molecules that were developed in the 70s and 80s versus some of the more recent ones. And it's night and day. They're much smaller and less complex. And now you have multiple chiral centers, really complicated small molecules. And if you think of therapeutics, you have small molecules, large molecules, which are really antibodies or protein domains, and then cell and gene therapies. So small molecules have gotten more complex. And then In approximately the mid to late 90s, you started having antibodies coming to the fore, and antibodies have gotten more complex. They've gone from antibodies to now they're bispecifics, antibody drug conjugates. So antibodies have gotten more complex. And then the next level is gene therapy vectors, which are assemblages of different types of proteins into a functional multimolecular assembly, and cells, which are even more complex multimolecular assemblies, right? So that's the direction we're going, increasing complexity. I would say then on the therapeutics, when you're actually looking at how patients are treated, combinations of things, particularly in oncology, you have multiple drugs that are being administered. So more complex molecules that are being administered in more complex regimens, that starts to become really hard for any one individual to manage effectively. So I think we're going to start seeing an increasing use of digital technology to help oncologists manage these increasingly complex regimens. So having Expert systems between your oncologist and your patient, I think, is going to be a direction we go as we see more and more complex therapies. And I think that digital technology will not just be to help you understand and manage. I think it will also involve sensors and things like that that are involved in actually monitoring the patient and and understanding, okay, we gave these complicated things. They're supposed to do X, Y, Z. The monitoring tells us some of the a subset of that's happening. That means we need to adjust the regimen or add a component or something like that to go the direction we're wanting to do. I see that complexity continuing to increase and an increasingly important role of digital technology in helping us manage that. No different, again, than the iPhone. And right, our own lives are getting more complex. iPhones help and other types of smartphones help us to manage that complexity. Yeah, very interesting perspective, Andy, and one I hadn't thought about previously. One additional point just on the future of biotech. What are some fundamental challenges that you see in 
operating models in biotech that you hope change in the coming years. Can you define operating models? Sure, sure. Yeah. In terms of we're going through, we're recording this in the early part of 2023. We talked about, you know, being in the midst of a correction. So think about full-time hiring, leveraging external providers. We talked about, you know, bringing manufacturing in-house. Curious what you think is somewhat of an existential threat to the ecosystem as it relates to how we operate that we should be thinking about. I'm always bullish on the idea that if you make really good drugs, they're going to be used and they will be paid for. So if I was going to point to something like is managing complexity is difficult. So if we're generating ever more complex therapeutics and there aren't ways to pay for the management of the complexity that ensues, I could see that being a barrier to future innovations that would be beneficial to patients. One aspect of, I would say, the experience I've had at Emoja has been the importance of having people together. But I could see a future where you have, you need small areas of focused expertise. And so, for example, we have people that are working specifically on just the technology around viral vector particles. We have other people who are working on just the immunology that is driven in an animal model when the vector particles are delivered. Those are groups that can talk over Zoom adequately well and plan experiments. They don't necessarily need to be co-located. And so you could see a future where small teams of people that like to work on particular kinds of projects might locate themselves in a particular place and do different projects for different companies as opposed to being located solely within companies. So I could imagine almost a gig economy of teams of people that have this type of expertise that you would then call on to help you build a particularly complex therapeutic, particularly when if you imagine trying to have a company where you'd bring all those together and you're paying all of them all the time, that might become unmanageable from a funding standpoint. So I could see something like that developing. You need the interface, right? Where do you find those people? How do you know what they've worked on before? So a digital platform that gives you the opportunity to identify, understand which teams you need to bring together. I could see that helping to manage that. But it's certainly something that we've thought about. We have 150 people. I definitely have discussions with my board members that are like, that's a lot of people, you know, how are you thinking strategically about financing that over time and maintaining the productivity of those teams going forward? And then at the same time that you're trying to have development programs and move things into the clinic. This was unsolicited, but thank you. You just did the Clora pitch. I'll have to get you a beer next time. <laughs> <laughs> We've thought about it. And when you have to have so many different areas of expertise and bring them all together, it really is a challenge funding-wise. So if you guys are able to find uh, and build an effective platform from that, it will be an interesting evolution in how biotechnology is practiced for sure. Well, Andy, before we let you go, you've actually already done quite a bit of reflection, but would ask for reflection one more time. As you look back at your career and all that you've experienced, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? I guess it's maybe one I practiced, but not as intentionally as I might have, which would be do things you believe in. I've always been a person that you do fundamental analysis. And if you believe your fundamental analysis is solid, it's very hard for me to be pushed off that position, right? By somebody else, you might have a different lens. So the advice I would give my younger self is, I think that helped me in some cases, but hindered me in some cases, would be talk to as many people as you can to make sure that your fundamental analysis is bringing together all of the relevant variables. And where I think I didn't do as well is I talked to a lot of technical people but I didn't always talk to people with regulatory, clinical, or financial expertise before I began to move things you know, toward a biotechnology application. So it's broadening the base of your analysis of an area earlier rather than later. That's what I would yeah. ask my younger self to do. 
tough because when you're young, you don't know what you don't know. I actually didn't know. It didn't even occur to me some of those questions to ask. And that's why you joining this podcast is so valuable is just that we're not limited by just the power of our network and folks are able to hear from you. I made the same exact mistake as well as just, you know, was too focused on a particular area and didn't get broad enough perspective early on. So that's great advice. Well, Andy, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for joining us today and wishing you and your colleagues continued success at Emoja. Likewise, Rahul, for yourself, and I really appreciate the opportunity to connect with your audience and best of luck with Chloe as well. Perhaps I will Thank be gone on a business basis at some time in the future. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.